So let's pray and we'll dive back into God's word. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you to be I thank you that we are part of a church that just loves their pastors really well. Lord, and uh I'm just so thankful for the care in which this congregation shows uh to us, to to my kids, to my wife. Uh, Lord, I'm just so thankful for the blessing of the sabbatical time to stop and to rest and to be away from things and to be with you. Lord, I'm so thankful and I just pray that it'll be fruitful and that I'll come back refreshed and ready for ministry, Lord. And, and I'm also thankful that as we close this series on Romans 8, we get to be reminded of two great truths. Your love for us is so amazing. There aren't enough adjectives to describe it, Lord, and there's nothing that can separate us from that love. So, Lord, we thank you for that truth, and we pray that it will move our hearts today. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, today we're wrapping up the series on identity from Romans 8. We've been looking at how our identity isn't found in anything other than Jesus. It's not found in our job, our, our marriage, our sexuality, our money, our status, and anything else. That if we have put our faith and trust in Jesus, we've been adopted into his family. We've been guaranteed an inheritance. And now we have a new identity that is found through Christ. We have a new life, a new purpose, and a new power through the Holy Spirit to walk in victory. So as we wrap up this series, looking at these last four verses of Romans 8, I just want to give you a big picture. And this is what I want you to walk away with, okay? So just these two things. One, God's love for you is greater, stronger, and more powerful than you can ever comprehend. And two, nothing can separate you from that love. Let's read Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Last week we looked at verses 31 to 34 which say, what shall we say in response to these things? And we looked at what those things were. That God works all things together for our good. That God chose us before the foundation of the world. That he's conforming us to the image of Christ. That we will bring God glory and that our salvation is secured. We were chosen, called, justified. And our glorification is certain because of the finished work on the cross. And so Paul said, in light of these things, what do we say in response? And so Paul asked five questions. And last week we looked at the first four. If God is for us, who can be against us? The answer is no one. If God, the almighty, all-powerful God is for us, no one can stand against us. Will not God graciously give us all things? Of course he will, because he loves us, because he's our father. Now we have to define what all things are. But we know that God provides everything we need. To live a life of godliness, he provides everything we need for salvation. He provides for our needs. Who will bring charges against us? The answer is no one. Satan can try to accuse us, but he can't accuse us because we have God. And then who is the one that condemns? The answer is no one. Because God is the one who condemns, 
but we have already been forgiven and redeemed by Him. So we get to this last question. Who can separate us? Who can separate us? The big picture is no one. And so we go back to those core truths, those two truths. And the first one is God's love for you is greater, stronger, and more powerful than you can ever comprehend. Now, I had a hard time writing this sentence because there's so many adjectives that we could use to describe how amazing God's love is. In fact, as I was going to look through the scriptures, I found how in the world do I narrow down which passages to choose on God's love? Because the scripture is full of the narrative of the love of God. And verse 35 says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Similar to last week, this is a rhetorical question that basically means no one. One of the most foundational truths you can learn as a Christian is this. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. It's a simple song we teach our kids, but it's the most foundational truth of Christianity. Jesus loves me. How do we know that? Because it says it in God's Word, and God's Word is what guides our life. At the core of His essence, God is love. In 1 John 4, 8 and 16, it says that very thing. God is love. It's not that God has love. He does, but God is love. Carl F.H. Henry put it this way. Love is not accidental or incidental to God. It is an essential revelation of the divine nature, a fundamental and eternal perfection. His love, like all of the divine attributes, reflects the whole of his being in specific actions and relationships. I remember being in a class in seminary, and the professor made a distinction that I had never thought about before. He said, is God wrath? No. God has wrath because God is just, because he's holy, because he's loving. Is God wrath? No. God has wrath. Is God love? Yes. God is love. At the very core of his essence, he is love. We see this all throughout scriptures. We see that God is love and that God demonstrates his love. Earlier in Romans 5, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not because of the good we had done, not because we had checked off all the boxes, but while we were still sinners. Billy Graham put it this way, God proved his love on the cross. When Christ hung and bled and died, it was God saying to the whole world, I love you. The core of his character is his love. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. That he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Because of our separation from God, God, out of his love, sent his son to die on our behalf. Psalm eighty-six, fifteen says, But you, O Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. God's character is abounding in love and this chesed, this faithful love, this faithfulness. When, we, when God gave us commands to follow, they are summarized by love. When God gave us the Ten Commandments, the first four can be summarized by love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the last six can be summarized by love your neighbor as yourself. To live out God's commands is to love Jesus said, how will Christians be known? By our love. See, when we love others well, 
we reflect the character of our God. There's lots of different religions out there, and there's radical sects of those religions. But Christianity, the radical Christianity is to radically love. It's to be willing to go into places where you'll die for your faith because of your love for the people that God has called you to serve. Radical Christianity is radical love. So the big picture is that God's love is greater, stronger, and more powerful than anything you can ever comprehend. And secondly, nothing can separate you from that love. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or or danger or sword? Paul lists these seven possibilities that could potentially separate someone from God, according to those on the outside. But of these seven, he's experienced each of them. To put it another way, are there any circumstances in your life that could cause you to doubt God, or should cause you to doubt God, I mean? And the answer is no. And so he gives these seven possibilities. And I broke it down into kind of three sections. First, we have this religious pressure. Then we have this economic pressure. And then we have this danger or peril. First, trouble could better be translated tribulation. It has to do with the pressure being put down. These situations we face that that can experience stress on our faith. And then hardship has the idea of being confined to a small space, of not being able to move. And so in some countries today, if you make your faith public, it could result in you losing your job. It could result in your family uh, kicking you out. It could result in imprisonment and potentially even death. So we have this this pressure. We have this being confined. And the third form is persecution. And that involves facing difficulties because of your faith. In our culture, in our context, the persecution looks much different than a lot of other countries. But we still experience some form of persecution. So we have this religious pressure, this Economic pressure. We see famine. Now we live in America where we haven't really experienced the famine in, in, in many years that's impacted us. But in that culture, it would have been a common experience. If you had a season where there wasn't enough rain, then often that would lead to a famine and there wouldn't be enough food and the crops couldn't grow. If there was some kind of natural disaster, whether it be an earthquake or, or anything else, often that would cause famine. And then in the midst of that, A lot of those places that the New Testament was written to, if there was a famine, as a Christian, often people would avoid buying stuff from you. Often people wouldn't sell stuff to you. So it would affect you at a deeper level. Nakedness. Now, the first time I read this, I didn't really know what to do with this. Because in America, usually when we think of the word naked, we think of someone that doesn't have clothes. Although now, like, naked refers to things that don't have antibiotics. Or there's all these drinks that are naked. I mean, it's just like strawberries and fruit and stuff. And I'm like, that's weird. Um, But in that culture, that would have been a synonym for poverty. Nakedness was this idea that I don't have enough money to buy clothes. And when you think about two of the things we need most, it's food and clothes. And so he's saying, will that separate us from God? Will poverty separate us from God? Third, endangerment. Although generic danger is included in this, the implication here is the danger for Christians because of their faith. According to the World Watch list in 2022, one in seven Christians suffer severe 
persecution throughout the world. And in about 100 countries, persecution has increased in absolute terms, and Christians are killed for reasons related to their faith. Which leads to this last descriptor, the sword. Now, this is the only one that Paul hasn't personally experienced, but I would say that basically he has, because they tried to execute him by stoning him, and he lived, but they didn't recognize he was still alive. And so Paul is very aware that many Christians would be executed because of their faith, and many other Christians would lose their father, their mother, their brother, their sister, or their friend to execution. And that still continues to this day. And so to expand on this idea, Paul then, in Romans 8, 36, quotes from Psalm 44, 22. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long, and we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. The psalm portrays the persecution of Israel by foreign nations that they were experiencing while they were trying to stay faithful to Yahweh. Now it's interesting, Paul wrote this letter roughly 57 to 58 A.D., around that time. Just a few years later, either in 64 A.D. or 67, there's some historical debate about which year it happened, Emperor Nero uh, blamed the fire in Rome on Christians, and he started the first systemic state-sponsored persecution of Christians. So Christians were arrested, they were thrown to wild beasts, they were crucified, they were rounded up and sacrificed, they were burned on poles to bring light to Rome, they were thrown in the arenas to experience those things. And so just a few years before this happened in Rome, Paul wrote this, telling the Christians that whatever you're going to face, nothing can separate you from the love of God. See, persecution and martyrdom could cause Christians to feel like, is God really for us? Does God really love us? And Paul's answer is this loud, yes, God loves you. Yes, he's for you. Nothing can separate you from his love. In verse 18 earlier, he talked about this blip, that our present sufferings, were very significant, especially for those in Rome in 64, 67 A.D. But they were not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. He's again pointing to this moment, this thing that you're going through, that's extremely difficult, is nothing compared to what eternity holds for those who are in Christ Jesus. So back to the question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, in all these troubles, in all these hardships, in all these persecutions, in your poverty, even in the threat of death, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And last week we looked at that word. It means you're super conquerors. It's not just the, 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 the army that after victory comes in rejoicing conquerors. No, it's we're more than conquerors. We can, in the midst of the battle, know that the battle is already won. That Christ already had the victory. In the midst of the mess, we can look to our Savior and go, Christ is victorious. Big picture. God's love for you is greater, stronger, and more powerful than anything you can comprehend. And nothing can separate you from that love. For I'm convinced 
that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the, the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We now come to the climax of Paul's argument. He began this section in verse 28 by saying, this is what we know. And now he says, I've experienced all of this, and this is what I am convinced of. We know God works all, good th- all things together for our good, and I'm convinced that nothing can separate us. He said, I've personally experienced trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, danger, and the sword, and recognized and experienced that nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. He says, neither death nor life. On this earth, death may feel like the greatest separator. There's a finality that seems to come from that. But for those of us that are believers in Christ, we know that death is not the end. In fact, death is just the transition to the rest of our lives with our Savior. We can have a hope because in Second Timothy it says, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Jesus destroyed death, and so we don't have to fear it. And neither death nor life. It's interesting that Paul uses life as a separator. I think that's because sometimes life can be more painful than death. Poverty can bring fear and uncertainty. Relationships can be broken, bringing pain and sorrow. Sickness can ravage our bodies and lead us sorrowful that we can't do what we used to do. Old age can bring limitations. We often can experience more separation in this life than we think that death has. But that separation does not separate us from God. This week I was reading uh, James Montgomery Boyce's commentary on Romans 8, and he talked about this story. He said, in this week, as I was preparing this particular study, I received a letter from a man who attended the 10th Presbyterian Church about 25 years ago. The story was a sad one. He had slipped into homosexuality when he was younger, and by his own confession, his lifestyle had cost him his family, his wife and his kids, his profession, and his health. This man had AIDS, and he was writing to say that during this terrible illness, he had found the Lord wanted him to receive the weekly cassette version of the Bible study hour, which he knew of and had found spiritual nurturing. Here is what he wrote in his words. Unfortunately, I'm losing my eyesight due to AIDS. I'm reading materials as fast as I can before I find myself unable to do so. Your tapes will enable me to continue my studies after my sight fails. I become obsessed with God. I can't get enough of His Word. He literally has become my sole incentive to live. I have lost so much already, and I'm losing everything else, but I cannot lose Him. He is the only reason I hold on to life, miserable as it is. My living now is preparing me for eternity. See, this man experienced something that changed in him, that God's love was greater, stronger, and more powerful than he could ever comprehend. And when he fell into the love of Jesus, it changed his life. And even as his eyesight failed, he couldn't get enough of God's word. Because that was where he experienced that love and that grace. 
Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons. Now it's hard to realize what Paul exactly is talking about here because angels are, are good and demons are bad. And how could something that was good separate us from God? But I think uh, when we look at Galatians 1.8, it's helpful. He says, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one preached to you, let them be under God's curse. In Galatians, Paul is speaking hypothetically about something that angels would never do. And so I think here in in Romans, what he's doing is saying basically nothing in the spiritual realm could separate you from the Lord. We already know earlier he said Satan's accusations hold no merit. Now he's saying nothing in the supernatural world can separate us because Christ triumphed over death. He triumphed over the principalities of this world. There's nothing that can separate us. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future. Now we tend to think of the past and the future. But we know as believers, the moment we put our faith and trust in Jesus, all of our sins are forgiven. And that's usually not what stresses us out. It's the present. It's the times where we want to follow God and yet our sin catches up to us like Romans 7 the things we want to do we don't do the things we don't want to do we do but God says there's nothing in the present nothing you can do right now nothing in the future nothing you can do in the future that can separate you from God's love if you've been adopted into God's family that adoption is permanent nor any powers. He's probably referencing back to what was just said, the powers of angels and demons, the power of death and life, the power of the present and the future. He's saying nothing can separate us from God's love, neither height nor depth. In Psalm 103, 11, it says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. I love Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. In other words, neither height nor depth can separate us from the love of God. Now, if if you haven't got the point yet, if you haven't figured it out, he, he summarizes it with this. Nor anything else. Anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because God's love for you is greater, stronger, and more powerful than anything you can ever comprehend. And nothing, nothing, nothing can separate you from that love. But Phil, what about this? I have this friend who, when they were in Awana, prayed a prayer, and now they're not living for Jesus. What about I had this other person that did this, and now they're not living for Jesus? I think it's simple to explain. In 1 John 2, it says they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going out showed that none of them belonged to us. In other words, when someone is redeemed by Christ, adopted in his family, it's permanent. But there are times where people make a confession and they never really have given their life to Jesus. They've never really 
receive the Holy Spirit. In fact, Matthew 13 tells a parable of a sower, and he goes and he, he sows the seed just on all the different grounds. And some falls on the, on the path, and the birds come and take it away. It doesn't even grow. And, and some falls in the cracks, and there's, there's not a soil. So immediately it grows, but then because there's no depth, there's no place to get roots, it, it dies. And then some grows where there's thorns, and the thorns choke it to death. And then it, so it grows initially, but then it dies. And the last one's a good soil, and it grows fruitful. Sometimes we have people that are those second and third soils that they seem to make this profession of faith, and there seems to be this this like faith that's blossoming, but then when the hardships come, then it is shown that they weren't really followers. So as believers, how can we have confidence in our eternal security? How can we go to bed at night knowing that our security is, our eternity is secured? Well, John 28 says this, I gave them, this is Jesus, eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. If we've been adopted into God's family, God the Father is a protector. Jesus is our protector. No one can snatch us out of their capable and mighty hands. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish. Not hopefully won't perish. Not maybe won't perish. Shall have eternal Life. Jude 24, to him who is able, our God is able to keep us from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. This blows my mind. <laughs> I look back at the last week. I can name a lot of faults. I can name moments where I, I wasn't who God has called me to be. But yet at the end, I will be presented before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. Why? Because the victory's already been run, won. Christ paid the penalty for our sins. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forever. Amen. See, if you're here and you're like, I don't have that security, I don't know if I will spend eternity with Jesus like you're talking about. I don't know if God loves me. This is what the Scriptures say. You need to repent of your sins. Believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose again and confess that He is Lord. Choose to follow Him. And the moment you do that, you're born again. You're you're justified. Your sins are forgiven and you're declared righteous by God because of Christ so He can present you without fault and with great joy. You're adopted into God's family. You're sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. And you're given the Holy Spirit and given a new identity because God's love is greater, stronger, and more powerful than anything you can ever comprehend. There's times where we can, we can doubt it. When our lives are difficult. When marriage is tough. When our family relationships aren't working out. When we lost our job. When we're experiencing some extreme physical difficulty. When we lost a loved one. All those things sometimes can cause us to doubt. Does God really love me? Is He really there for me? if you're having those doubts, I want you to do two things. One, 
Consider this. We don't serve a God who is distant. We serve a God who willingly entered into this earth, came down to experience hunger, thirst, rejection, loss. So if you wonder how could God allow this to happen, remember that He inflicted it on Himself. And secondly, if you doubt God's love, look at the cross. Jesus willingly endured the most excruciating death imaginable because of his love. To bring glory to the Father and to bring you into a relationship with him. He endured the cross, scorning its shame for us. See, nothing can separate you from that love. And so if you, today, if you're like, I have not experienced that today. Turn to Jesus. And secondly, if you've already been adopted in God's family, you've already put your faith and trust in Christ, you've already received the Holy Spirit, just know that nothing can separate you from the love of God. In fact, if you're having doubts, that probably is a sign that you have the Holy Spirit. Because you're sensitive to your sin. You're sensitive to the, the things that you're doing. And, you, and you're recognizing that what's happening is wrong and you need God's help. That's a, that's a sign of the Holy Spirit working in your life. So when you have doubts, go, go back to this passage. See, when we sin, our, our tendency is to run away from God. You know, I, I don't like conflict. And so when I'm in conflict with somebody, I tend to avoid them. Not to deal with it. And, and sometimes when we sin that our natural reaction is to avoid God because we feel bad. But Hebrews 4 says, we're to boldly come before the throne of grace knowing we will receive mercy in our time of need. When we sin, that is the time to run to Jesus because God's love is greater, stronger, more powerful than you can ever comprehend and nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. In the words of Donald Gray Barnhouse, The Lord leaves heaven and comes down to earth. He allows himself to be led to the judgment hall where he is buffeted and spat upon. He walks to Calvary and permits men to nail him to the cross. From that cross he cries, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We see these things happen and he tells us they they happen for us. We look upon him with amazement and wonder if he really means it. Then he smiles at us and tells us that he does really mean it and that he does really love us and that nothing, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. For the next nine weeks, I'm not going to be up here preaching. I thought, if I want you to remember one thing for those nine weeks, it's this, that God's love for you is greater, stronger, And more powerful than you can ever comprehend. And nothing can separate you from that love. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your goodness and your grace. Lord, we don't deserve your love. We don't deserve your grace. We don't deserve the cross. In our sin and rebellion, we turned against you. We sought our own way. And we were separated from you, but you, God, demonstrated your love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, you died for us. Lord, thank you for the cross. 
the most amazing demonstration of love possible. Lord, if there's anyone in here that does not have a relationship with you, I pray that today they will make that decision to turn to you, to experience your love and your grace, to repent of their sins and give their life to you. If there's anyone here today that has doubts, maybe they're going through something really hard and they're going, does God really love me? Does God really care? Help them today to remember the cross. In your holy name we pray. Amen.